it'll happen. But I would also tell him that you gotta make sure that you're moving forward and you are committed to taking small, consistent steps towards whatever it is you want. Because what happened, you know, when I moved to LA is I was really gun ho and motivated for that first year, year and a half. And when things didn't happen as quickly as I wanted them to, I kind of put it on the back burner for, you know, seven years plus until I made the decision to pick it back up. And when I made that decision, I committed to those small, consistent steps to, you know, taking action every day. And that's made the world of difference. You are tuning in to For Better Self and Net Worth Podcast. This is a podcast where I encourage you to live the life of your dreams by adopting the right mindset, navigating through tough challenges, and respecting your bank account. I interview entrepreneurs and empire builders from across the globe as they share how they have come to live the lives of their dreams and the challenges they had to break through. I also have a few solo episodes where I talk about the lessons learned and navigating in a world full of naysayers, negative mindsets, and money grabbers. I personally believe that attitude is everything, and with the right attitude, you can get the life that you dream of. I'm so glad you're on this journey with me. If you're listening, make sure you have hit the subscribe button, and on Apple, give me some love by leaving a review. Most of all, I hope every episode you hear on here leaves you inspired and on fire to live your best life without breaking the bank. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to For Better Self and Net Worth. I'm super excited. This is my first guest this year. We have the owner of Camp Nick, a youth adventure camp in Los Angeles, an inspirational speaker who talks about the importance of emotional health and resilience, and someone that has walked across America. Everyone, welcome Mr. Nick Tucker. Nick, would you like to tell us a background about yourself and how you got to be the person that you are today? Do you want the short answer or the long answer? Whatever answer. So I actually grew up in the Northeast. I was born in Boston and I grew up outside of Boston and in Maine. So I'm like a mix between a suburban upbringing and a rural Maine upbringing. But I was born to a single mother who, unfortunately, she had a heroin addiction. So she ended up losing me pretty early on and I was put into foster care. Uh, So I was a ward of the state of Massachusetts and I ended up spending the first two and a half years of my life with this wonderful family, the Laurians. Now my mother ended up getting clean. She had my younger sister and she got both of us back from the state and we, we lived with our mother, but in 92, she was diagnosed with the AIDS virus. And it was, you know, it was rough for a little while because it took a real toll on her physically and emotionally. And eventually, after almost seven years of being clean, she relapsed and we had to go live with the Larian. So for years, a few years there, we bounced back and forth between the Larians and my mother until eventually we were in Southern Maine full time. And that's really when I began to, to thrive. And I was doing well in school. I was doing well in sports. And I started emceeing all the school pep rallies. And that's when I first figured out that Hey, man, I like love getting up in front of people 
and speaking, but maybe back then it was a little bit more attention seeking, but it kind of, it kind of grew. And I started getting praise for my public speaking skills. I'm like, maybe I have a gift here. And then senior year of college, I took a public speaking class and the professor's like, you're really good. I think you could do this for a living. A few years later, I was like, I want to pursue public speaking. I want to talk about overcoming adversity. So I moved to LA to try to figure it out. And I've been in LA for 10 years. And in the last year, it's finally been happening for me. That's wonderful to hear. So you've been in Los Angeles for 10 years, right out of college. You knew you wanted to do public speaking and now you're doing it full time. I am not doing it full time yet. And it was a few years between college and moving out to L.A. In between college and moving here, I actually took a walk with my best friend. We started in Maine and we walked 3,400 miles all the way to Los Angeles, California. And you can imagine after an adventure like that, you're like, what am I going to do with my life? I had this economics degree, but I didn't want to enter the corporate world. I always knew I wanted something different. So I was literally at home for 10 months at 24 years old, figuring out what to do. And that's when I made the decision that I wanted to pursue public speaking. And that's when I made the decision that I wanted to do it in Los Angeles. And then I got here. It didn't happen right away. As you know, I'm sure Ella and many of your listeners know, your life takes unexpected detours. So I ended up working in homes as a Manny. I worked for a nonprofit. I eventually in 2016 started my own camp and I never thought it was going to grow to be anything. I just wanted to stay connected to this community uh, of families where I worked. I worked at a school and I was like, I like these kids. I don't like working in the classroom. Let me try two weeks of summer camp. I was like, hey, I can make money doing this. So now, seven years later, I actually make my living running this camp, but I'm trying to transition, I say, from taking care of kids and watching over them to speaking to to youth. So I'm really working on building up my speaking business so I can transition into doing it full time. That's why I moved here. That's my dream. And if all goes well, hopefully I'll be able to retire my wife. I know it's pipe dreams, especially in a city like LA, but it's a nice, fun thing to to work towards. LA, Nashville, New York, those are great places to be if you have large dreams. And you walked from Maine to Los Angeles. Did I hear that correctly? You you did. You heard that. Absolutely. What? <laughs> And we went through Tennessee, not not Nashville, but I can tell you a little bit how that came to be. I was I didn't graduate on time. I actually took a semester off in college. So I was I graduated a semester late and I was in the midst of waiting for this Watson fellowship. I went to Colby College. So I, I applied for this fellowship where you kind of create this independent project and then you get a twenty five thousand dollar grant to go overseas. And one of the caveats is you can't come back to your home country during that time. So I wrote up my proposal for the project. I wrote up a biography. I had a a professor as an advisor and I ended up being a finalist for my school and everyone was confident and as sure as you can be with something so selective that I had a good shot at getting it. I graduated in December, 2010. I had to wait till March of 2011 to hear 
in between that time, I had read this book about this guy who lost everything in his life. So he just decided he was going to walk as far as he could. And at that point, I had lost my biological mother when I was 18 and my father when I was a junior in college. So I had, I really related to the protagonist in this story and in his sense of loss. So I was just like, man, what's the furthest I could walk? Or where is the furthest I could walk? And I was in Maine at the time. So I was like Southern California, but it was just an idea. I was waiting on this fellowship, uh, a fun thing to daydream about. But fast forward a few months, I did not get the fellowship. And that day I made the decision that I was going to walk across the country. And I was lucky enough that my best friend in the world said he was going to quit his job and do it with me. So we took off August 6th, 2011. August 16th. So about 12 years later, is your friend still with you in LA? He is not. So I didn't stay out here. I went home and that summer of 2012, we were trying to figure out a way to, to, to stay together in business and in life. But he ended up going to law school down in Virginia and he's a lawyer in Virginia and I'm actually attending his wedding in April. And I'm here in L.A., though I have been trying to get him to L.A. for the entirety of my stay here, just unsuccessfully. Wonderful. That is quite that is such a story. And you talk about a lot. You and I've talked off the air about overcoming adversity. So if you could go back to the 24 year old Nick that was just you just walked across the United States, ended up in Los Angeles, what would you tell the 24 year old Nick I would tell him to to be patient that it'll happen but I would also tell him that you gotta make sure that you're moving forward and you are committed to taking small consistent steps towards whatever it is you want because what happened you know when I moved to LA is I was really gung-ho and motivated for that first year year and a half and when things didn't happen as quickly as I wanted them to, I kind of put it on the back burner for, you know, seven years plus until I made the decision to pick it back up. And when I made that decision, I committed to those small, consistent steps to, you know, taking action every day. And that's made the world of difference in being able to finally get on stage and being paid to be on stage or it not happening. So if I could tell my 24 year old self that I would really try to drive that home. Now, whether he'd listen, that's up to him. Yeah. Well, tell me about some of your recent speaking engagements. So this fall, I was able to get on a few stages back in my home state of Maine and in Massachusetts. I went to a couple high schools and a middle school and I was able to tell them my personal story. And what I've been really trying to get through to kids is that emotional health is very important. So I tell them my story about going through adversity, about, you know, really, really thriving when I had some stability and certainty in my life, but then how years of not really facing my emotions, because I had gone through some pretty hard stuff, Ella, yeah. that I didn't know was hard until I was 22, you know, watching my mother just physically deteriorate from this virus called AIDS and watching her use drugs was really tough on me. And when you're a kid, you don't know what to do with those emotions. So of course I learned at a very young age how to escape, how to bury, how to run. 
And then I bring the kids on this journey. Like, look, this stuff happens and some bad stuff can happen to you when you're young before you have the capacity to understand. But if you don't learn how to process what's happening to you, this is what can happen later on in life. So in college, I was binge drinking. I was, I became extremely promiscuous. I was becoming violent when I was blackout drunk and I didn't know why until eventually I wrote out my story. I was like, Hey, there's a pattern here. I never processed my emotions and all this trauma that I had walked through is coming back and it's manifesting in my life in very destructive ways. So I try to tell kids to stop, take a minute, look at your life, take some inventory, try to process things you haven't processed, talk to someone if you need to, so that you can move forward, trying to be a better version of yourself. And that's what I've been able to do uh, last year and what I continue to, to strive to do this year and moving forward. I, I really, yeah, I'm really touched by that. It's because what you've been through, you know, most people don't, you know, so unfamiliar to them, you know, yeah. watching you've watched, well, you had your first, your birth mother was taken away from you. Yeah. And then it was your adopted mother. Yeah. We can that use it passed away from AIDS or adopted foster mother. My, my, so we call them my guardians because they never officially adopted me since both of my parents okay. were around until after I was 18. But they, I, they were a very protective factor in my sister and my life because whenever, you know, my dad, we had a relationship with him, but we never were raised by him. You know, we'd visit him when he was stable and when he was around and not, you know, running the streets using, but Really, it was my biological mother and my guardians, Lisa and Paul, who raised me. And whenever my mother was either too sick or maybe she had relapsed and she was really struggling with her drug use, we would go with Lisa and Paul and my four brothers and sisters, non-biological. It was their biological children. They had four, but I've known them since I was pretty much born. So they're as much my brother and sisters as my own blood. Uh, but they were there when my mother couldn't be. And I feel like because of that, we really had a chance for stability in our lives and we had a chance for something a little bit more predictable because when you don't have that and you're a kid, it, you can, a lot of things, I don't know, I don't know really how to put it, but it can be very hard to overcome adversity when you don't have any stability and kids need and want boundaries. They need and they want something they can reach for and they know that it'll be there. And that's what the Laurians were for my sister and I. And I think, I really think that's why I was able to to do so well, given what I had seen as a child. Yeah. And something else is you talk about masking it with alcohol and promiscuity. I know that's very common in our generation to kind of mask their feelings and just their shortcomings with the party scene. Yeah. Which, which I think is, I think people are starting to, I want to say evolve past that and to be able to process their emotions on their own because, you know, we grew up at a time where, you know, there's such a stigma around mental health and taking care of yourself and even like having high self-esteem. It was just mm -hmm. the person that the confident person, the person who answered all the questions in class, the person who had their head up high was the person that got picked on the most. Mm -hmm. And 
now I think as a society with people like you coming forward and talking about processing those emotions and dealing with the hard stuff that is providing a pathway for other generations to be able to, you know, feel their feelings and deal with what's in front of them and not use other things as a crutch. Yeah. And, I think, yeah. Continue. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I was really intrigued when you said you have Camp Nick mm-hmm. for you. Do you see a lot of kids that deal with some of the same trauma that you've dealt with? I don't see a lot of them. Uh, most of my clients are middle class, probably most of them are upper middle class to, mm-hmm. to, to well off. It, so they don't deal with the the trauma that I face have, you know, growing up in a household where you're on welfare and money scarce and you don't know when you go to the grocery store if your mother's EBT card has enough funds or not. So they don't deal with that. Uh, but they deal with their own trauma, you know, divorce, that is a trauma for kids. And there's plenty of that with the kids I work with. But I, I haven't met a lot of kids through my line of work that have dealt with terminal illness, at least to my, my knowledge or a lot of addiction. I do have kids that I know and I'm close with who don't live with their birth parents. You know, they were adopted um, and maybe some of them know their birth parents and some of them don't. So they have that aspect of my upbringing and and we can connect on that level. But one thing I do want to do more of is really connecting with at-risk youth. So I've been actually reaching out to local nonprofits that deal with foster kids or just kids who are struggling with, with something. And I'm trying to get into those spaces pro bono, of course, to, to just pass on what I've learned over the years. Cause a lot of it, Ella, like you touched on stems from not being able to, to process emotions, but we are in a different generation. I think it's much more acceptable now. Like you just don't know what you don't know. And I didn't know I wasn't processing my emotions and I didn't, know what it was going to do to me and and then I learned <laughs> yeah well and it's a good thing you've learned because you've been able to get clean and follow your dreams you're now a father congratulations thank you and you have quite on your website I was looking through you have been recognized by Toastmasters and a lot of other impressive organizations I know if you've spoken at a couple of schools so how are you going about getting the speaking engagements and getting your feet off the ground? Ella, this is not easy. No. As, as you can imagine, I actually got to the point where I hired a coach when I decided to to pick the speaking business back up. And uh, his name is Mark Black. He's a motivational speaker from Canada. And I, I hired him and I was like, Mark, man, I want to do this, but I just don't know where to start. And he just helped me organize myself and, and pointed me in the right direction. And, and Ella, I imagine you've experienced something similar where you want to do something, you're not really sure how, so you seek guidance and you point, yep. you seek someone to kind of point you in the direction. And he kind of did that for me, but trying to get the speaking gigs was more on me. I sent out hundreds of emails, uh, you know, but reaching out, you know, you know, we call them cold calls or cold emails. It's very, very low success rate. Yeah. I mean, 
you're not even likely to hear back from the the, the people. So Both I didn't, of them. Yeah. yeah. I don't even think I got one speaking gig out of that. But where I did find success is really leaning into the network that I've already built. And like any other industry, personal connections are 90% of the game. You know, my first few speaking gigs came from, you know, my old high school. The principal now was my freshman year uh, algebra teacher. And the other few gigs I got through recommendations from my cousin, who was a longtime administrator for high schools in Massachusetts. So I really had to work my network to get on stage. And you hope that when you get your foot in the door, that you're talented and gifted enough to where you get referred out. And that's really what's been happening. And is my program 100% complete? No, it's evolving. I'm still refining it. Like any product you offer to the marketplace, you always want to get better. But, you know, I, I do well enough and I do think I have a gift where I am getting referrals to other schools and organizations. And now all I got to do is kind of seal the deal. I would agree to that. You really do have a gift and a way of speaking with people. Thank you. What, what tips would you have to the listeners to become better public speakers? I would, if you're, it depends what you want to want to do, but it, let's say, you're giving presentations at work, or maybe you want to do something more like I'm doing. It's really all the same. I really recommend Toastmasters as a tool to utilize. It's pretty inexpensive. Most clubs were talking under 60 bucks um, every six months. And what they do there is they really help you eliminate some of the speaking no-nos or some of the things we do as when we're up in front of people that take away from the message we're trying to relay. So that's filler words. That's like ums, ahs, you knows. Uh, they yep. they really like yeah, like you know. And it's it's <laughs> hard to completely eliminate them. Like I haven't even completely elim- eliminated them. But if you could whittle them that down, it makes your presentation that much more impactful. But it also helps you get comfortable getting up in front of people and speaking comfortable, not just with what you're saying, but with your body, using gestures, utilizing whatever space you have um, where you're presenting, whether it's a stage or whether you're in front of a a conference room. Uh, And and it touches on all of that from when you're doing PowerPoints or when you're just going off the cusp or whether you're writing and presenting a speech from a, a podium or a lectern. But let's say you don't want to join a club. I would I would record yourself or give a speech in a mirror so you can see what you look like and what you sound like. But what you're going to miss out on, unless you're giving that recording to other people, is you're going to miss out on the peer review. And that's really where Toastmasters thrives because you're being, I don't want to say judged because it's not judged, you're being coached on your speeches so that you can continue to improve. And I've learned too, like peer reviewed projects, if you're reviewing them, they're reviewing you, you're learning a lot from each other. So I will look at other portfolios and see what I see in them and say, okay, this is what I think. And that's something that if I notice that in somebody else, I can also apply it to my own. Yeah, absolutely. You get just as much out of reviewing someone else's speech or someone else's portfolio or whatever it is than you do about having your stuff reviewed. 
Yes. Yes. I, I love that. And $60 for every six months, that's a steal. It's a rough number. I don't know what it is now in some clubs. <laughs> <laughs> some clubs ch uh, charge an additional fee depending on whether they need a rent out space or not. But the Toastmasters fee itself is, is very, very affordable for, for most people. Good, good. And public speaking is a skill that anyone should have regardless of what career path you go into. Absolutely. I have people walking into Toastmasters clubs that just want to get better at interviewing. Mm-hmm. Because job interviews can be very daunting. Yeah, I so believe it or not, I'm not. I don't think I'm very good at them. <laughs> but you know, I've gone off on my own, so it's less pertinent now. But if I ever want to join the cor corporate world, I might have to brush up myself on my interviewing skills. I think the best interviews are, just in my opinion, are conversational instead of interrogation processes. Mm -hmm. But I think. I, I've done the job interview thing before. And I think a lot of people, they have a, I think they have fun with the interrogation process. <laughs> it, it seems like it anyway, by the way, I'm reading the situation. <laughs> no, that's actually, that's a fun thing to think about. I was invited as a student interviewer uh, at my high school when I was a senior, because there was a vacant spot in the counselor's office. So I got to help interview this gentleman who was applying for the job and I remember I had fun <laughs> interrogating him a little bit and throwing him a couple curveball questions. I think I, I threw out some sort of basketball metaphor because I played basketball in high school. Like, do you see yourself more as like a point guard or or the star? But I don't even remember what it was. But yeah, uh, I guess it's it's not that far fetched to think that some people enjoy throwing curveballs or interrogating because it's kind of fun. It is kind of fun. And honestly, I played basketball growing up and I don't know the difference between a point guard and what is it? The captain. I don't remember all the team. Yeah. All the, yeah, all the positions. Yeah. I don't, I don't even really remember what I said, but I think I was trying to get to the, what I was trying to get at was, are you a team player or are you like a ball hog? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I remember Growing up TV, watching the Chicago Bulls, I was like, Michael Jordan's a ball hog. Michael Jordan's a ball hog. But it's like, but what he's doing is working for the team. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> did you grow up in Tennessee? I did. Oh, do you? You guys don't? No, you have Memphis Grizzlies. We I don't do? know if you did. When, I don't know how long they've been there. I am really not sure. I lived on the other side of the state, close to the Virginia and North Carolina line. Ah, uh, yeah. So I don't remember the professional team. We were closer to the Charlotte Hornets. Ah, uh, yes, I was a Charlotte Hornets fan growing up because yeah. I really liked Glenn Rice. Glenn Rice, I don't. I think I know that name. Sounds and so I like the jerseys. All the purple and teal. Yeah, I like the teal. My, that was my first basketball jersey, uh, at least from when I could remember. My si older sister got it for me when I was in third grade. I wore that thing everywhere. Yeah, it was a Johnson is when you guys had Larry Johnson. OK, yeah, I, I do think I remember having a couple like Charlotte Hornets T-shirts and uh, Duke basketball was big in my family. So that's where my dad oh, went to school. Yeah. I so so are you is your family OK uh, now since Coach K uh, retired? You know, I haven't really heard them talk much about it. Uh, they, they're avoiding it. You, you have to get them to talk about their feelings regarding this 
this development. Yeah, I, I remember hearing it last year and then losing to North Carolina both times was devastating. But, and I also watched Coach K's 1,000th game was played on my birthday one year. Oh. Because we went and had a birthday celebration and then a couple of my friends went in to go to the bar afterwards to watch the 1,000th birthday or 1,000th. It was my birthday, but it was also Coach K's 1,000th game day. Oh, man. College basketball is fun. And that rivalry between yes. and Duke, it's, I think in college sports, it might be second to none. Some people may argue, but it's it's a good one. It's up there. And I think everyone takes part in it, likes one team or the other, even if they're, you know, a Tennessee fan or they, I don't know, who, yeah. who else? Who's a even good if you're from guy? Maine, people have the team that they prefer when you're talking Duke, North Carolina. It's, yes. Nationally, people choose sides. And it's it's a fun thing to do. Yeah. I guess I was, and I'm sorry, I probably was a North Carolina guy uh, growing up. Well, why? <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> you're just like, like yeah. And that, yeah, that's what I see a lot. Probably because yeah. you're forced to pick sides. I'm, I'm from Tennessee and I cannot stand the University of Tennessee because orange is not my color. And uh-huh. I went to college with a lot of people who paid way more attention to the University of Tennessee sports teams than they did ETSU. Oh, okay. So the vault, what's the mascot? Vols? Uh, it's a, it's a dog. It's a mutt dog, not even a purebred. And they, um, I think the original was like a guy that was a pioneer. At car- I remember a pioneer that carried a shotgun. Is this, so is University of Tennessee is the orange one, yeah? Yeah, the really, it looks like really, you know, disgusting, Pat- overwashed okay. orange. This is Pat Summit. Yes. Yeah, okay. She's I was cool. So my older sister played basketball. So, I, you know, I'm five years younger than her, but I used to just like sit in the front row didn't want anyone else around me and just used to watch her basketball games. I knew all of the girls on the teams. Like I was their number one fan, but she loved watching women's college basketball. So I used to watch it with her and her favorite team was, was was Tennessee. So I was very into the Tennessee UConn rivalry back when uh, Tennessee had Tamika Catchings. I loved her. And so that Gino, um, that Gino Pat summit rivalry. And I was always pulling for Tennessee. I think Gino got the last laugh, but Pat Summit, she's a Hall of Famer. I mean. And I've seen, now I've been to a um, NCAA Women's Championship, and I remember Gino winning. Gino was a guy, right? Yeah. I mean, I he won several so. after. Yeah. I mean, Pat Summit had a lot of success, and then she kind of passed the torch to, you know, unwillingly to, to Gino and the Yukon Huskies, and they won several national championships. Uh, I think he's still coaching there. I mean, they had Diana Taurasi. They had uh, Maya Moore. They had a bunch of big names come through there that really delivered for their teams. Yes, that, now, everybody loves Pat Summit. I volunteer for the Alzheimer's Association. I remember when she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, the burnout just exploded. Mm. Yeah. Did she end up passing away? I feel like that sounds. She did. Yeah. Very recently, I do believe. And yeah, it, 
yeah, very, very sad. I mean, if they haven't named the basketball arena after her yet, I hope they do. I'll have to check on that. I might, after this conversation, I might just get back into college basketball. I know I have, I've been away from it for a while now, but maybe, maybe it's time. <laughs> March Madness used to be a lot of fun and I used to get really close to winning the brackets. Maybe I should get back into it. I, I haven't even watched a college football game in the past few years. It used to be my world. Now I'm just like, oh, I need to, you know, work on podcasts. I got to work on school, mm-hmm. stay active. <laughs> it's just. I, I yeah. suck at the brackets and, uh, you know, I don't, I more so now, but when I was younger, I didn't particularly enjoy doing things I wasn't good at. So we talk about masking, you know, it. there's a lot of ways to mask and it's not just drugs and alcohol or you know I was always praised for being a good student in high school I was you know praised in or got a lot of positive attention for being popular uh I got a lot of positive attention for being a good athlete so I really built my identity around around being all of those things so as when those things were no longer there. So I go to Colby College, which is an elite liberal arts institution. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I'm not in the top of my class anymore. You know, I'm like in the bottom quarter of my class. So I'm not getting positive attention for for that. So you start to lean into other things. And yes, I was on the football team and I ended up starting on the football team sophomore year, but it was not like I was a star anymore. So I wasn't getting a lot of attention for that. So I leaned into attention from people and specifically attention from girls. So I, that really spiraled in my life because it just became this cycle of like getting drunk and trying to hook up, getting drunk and trying to hook up. And I learned later on that I was like using that to validate myself or to feel good about myself because there was something missing underneath. Yeah. That I, you know, that's a common story for a lot of, I think a lot of people in general, but especially for men, yeah, it's I, some people say it's society as some people say it's nature. It's it's both. The reality is we're not taught from young or at least my generation and generations prior to us. We're not taught to to process our emotions and actually we're taught to kind of bury them and not face them. And I know especially our parents generation, you know, everything was swept under the rug. If anything happened in the household, it's not like that anymore. Thank God. But, you know, even as millennials, we weren't really told to to sit down and, and talk about our feelings. It, let me rephrase that. We were some of us, my mother tried. I wasn't willing <laughs> um, because we didn't see it in, in pop culture and we didn't see it from other men. Yeah. And that's kind of like the man that hooks up with all the women that gets all the girls' attention. That's the cool guy. Yeah. I was trying to be that. Yeah. Not the guy that is respectful. It's like Barney right. Barney Stinson on How I Met Your Mother. Disgusting. Oh, yeah. Oh, and then God. they paired him, <laughs> they paired him up that. with Robin, who was supposed to be self-respecting and Mm-hmm. After that happened, I quit watching the show altogether because I just remember how disgusted I was by the whole thing. <laughs> um, and, and well, they're like they do, like what happens in many sitcoms is the the writers wrote themselves into a corner into 
to try to get back from that. I mean, the last season was not very good, but you know, college, it was a, it was a crap show. And I, basically what was happening is my actions were running up against what I was taught growing up. Mm -hmm. And when I, you know, when I was with Lisa and Paul and my, my, my guardians and my brothers and sisters, we grew up going to church and I was taught, um, traditional sexual morality in the sense that you wait until you get married or how to be respectful of of women so there was this undertone of guilt even when I was you know at the deepest deepest of depths into the whole drinking and being promiscuous there was this undertone of of, of guilt because I knew I knew better in you know intellectually in my mind I knew better but I like couldn't help myself and I I a part of me didn't want to help myself because like you said I, I I guess I wanted to be the cool guy or at the very least I was feeding off of this attention so it was kind of like a drug you know it was my vice it was my addiction now with drinking I didn't need to drink but you know the binge drinking culture in in college I wasn't going to say no everyone else was doing it and it seemed fun yeah that's that's what's fun to do it's like you go I think I went to college in, you know, far East Tennessee. And the whole thing was, well, there's nothing to do, but drink beer. Right. I found other things to do, but that's just what the common notion was. Right. If I could go back to undergrad and redo it, I would, I would do it in a heartbeat. I mean, no regrets. Don't get me wrong, but I've visited my alma mater a few times and I learned about things they had offered that I had no idea. Like they had a woodworking class they had a blacksmithing class I was like they had this while I was here and I know I would do that you know we weren't far from some of the Appalachian Mountains like I would have went hiking I love hike I mean I walked across the country I love hiking I love backpacking and I was right there in central Maine with it at my fingertips and I didn't take advantage of any of it and I'm kind of kicking myself for not doing it but you know we live and we learn and and that's why I get up on stage and I talk to younger kids because you hope you're really just planting seeds and you hope they get something from it. But obviously like us, they're going to make their own mistakes, but at least you hope that they're like, wait a minute, you know, my parents or wait a minute, this guy, or wait a minute, somebody said this one thing one time. Okay. I get it now. Yeah. And if you can learn it later in life, you're still doing better than a lot of other people. Yeah. And it's, yeah. to process your emotions and to enjoy what's around you later in life, instead of masking things, mm-hmm. I think you're still better off than most people. Yeah. And, and I would want your listeners to know that like people are going to walk through it. And I think most people like me, at least I want to think most people are like me, probably especially men is a lot of us have to learn the hard way, but where the planting the seeds comes in is, you never learn if you don't know any better. So you're trying to let people know that there's a better way. Now, whether they choose that way or not, that's up to them. But maybe they get to a point, some point in their life where they're just hitting rock bottom and they don't know where else to turn. And they they remember that there is a better way. And they remember maybe where to look to, to try to find that path. And then hopefully they have the strength to make the decision to take that path. 
and to have some great role models. And I know the messages that you're giving these kids, they're going to remember later in life. They're going to have that in their arsenal. Your mouth to God's ears. (laughs) (laughs) Make just to make the right decisions. Well, Nick, thank you so much for sharing your stories and for being so vulnerable. Um, This just was very inspiring, very touching. Um, You have overcome a lot of adversity and you're using your life to help improve others, which I really admire. How can we, listeners for Better Self and Net Worth Community, support you? Well, there's so many ways you can support me. First, I'd start by visiting my site. It's nickrtucker.com. That's nickrtucker.com. And I am trying to get on more stages. I'm trying to get in front of more adolescents, more young adults. And and I want to tell them my story. I want to tell them what I've learned. I want to impart the wisdom that I think is could be beneficial for them to carry with them as they you know, as they start to separate themselves from their parents and go out into the world on their their own, because there are a lot of people stuck and there are a lot of kids who who have walked through trauma and don't know where to turn. And they need to hear messages like mine. It doesn't even have to be mine. I would like it to be mine because I'm trying to, to make a living doing this. But if you know of schools or organizations that that could use this message that that I am delivering, then please visit my site, reach out to me, refer me if you think they would get something out of it. And that's, I think, the best way you can support me at this point in in my journey. Wonderful. Well, I will put your website in the show notes. And also any social media? Uh, My IG is at Nick R. Tucker. So nickrtucker.com, Nick R. Tucker is my IG. So there is some continuity there. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I will make sure, give you a shout out, put you in the show notes. And I'm sure so many people are going to be inspired by your message. Thank you, Ella. Yeah. Thank you. This was fun. You are listening to For Better Self and Net Worth. In this community, we think you'll find your self-worth comes before your net worth and everything else. We also think you were designed to go after the life you want by ditching societal norms, knowing exactly who you are as an individual and going after your unique purpose here on this earth. Every week, Ella interviews an entrepreneur that designed the life they wanted among the challenges, naysayers, and leaving outside their comfort zone. Or you're going to hear straight from Ella, where she talks about the important lessons she's learned in life and how she's achieved the overall happiness she has. This is Ella, the host for Better Self and Net Worth. Based out of Nashville, Tennessee, she makes every single day an adventure. You'll always find her right here behind the microphone, sharing all her thoughts with all of you. And we appreciate you listening and hope you enjoy this episode.